0: I'm really thrilled that you're here. I've already invited you to rest, and I want you to remember that. I really mean it. Um, I also uh, I want to invite you um, to recognize that you're here by the invitation of God, the Father Almighty, the author of the universe, and that's kind of an amazing thing. And I want you to know, too, that Psalm 139, we sang a section of that psalm today, David played it, um, has some amazing things to say. And one of the things that it says is that nothing happens in your life by accident. That uh, none of you is here today by accident, but rather you're here because God has really drawn you into this place. He's working in your heart, hopefully. He's working in your life. Uh, But he's got something for you to experience or hear this morning. And that's pretty amazing to think that Psalm 139 says that all the days ordained for me were written in your book of life before one of them came to pass. And that means that all the little things that occur in your life aren't accidental, but they're meaningful, they're weighty. And uh, this morning is no different. We have, over the last couple of weeks, been covering uh, John chapter 1, and we've really been calling the sermon series, Our New Life with God. And what we've been doing is we've been taking a look at how Jesus comes along, and he meets these people, and he invites each of them into a new life with him. And when they are invited in this new life with him, all of these things change, right? One of the things that happens is they're given a new perspective, right? All of a sudden, they see that Jesus is the Lamb of God, and it's actually his sacrifice on their behalves, that makes them acceptable to God. It's a brand new perspective. And so they get to rest a little bit, right? It's not that they're trying to earn God's affection. Rather, that it's that God uh, has given his affection to Jesus. And because we are covered with the blood of Christ, we now have God's affection as well. We are adopted as his daughters. We're adopted as his sons. Not only that, but when Jesus comes along and he invites these various people into a relationship with him, they each, each also walk away uh, with a new mission, and that new mission is uh, is to point people to Jesus, just like John the Baptist did, just like Philip did, just like Peter did, just like Nathaniel did. They all walk away from Jesus with this new mission of saying, "Look, this guy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Messiah." And in the same respect, when God calls us into a new life with Him through His Son Jesus, we have a new mission too. And it's really kind of say, "Look, our hope is not in our good behavior; it's not in our successes." And instead, it's absolutely and completely in the Lamb of God. Finally, we have a new master, right? When we're called into this new life with God through Jesus, all of a sudden we kind of realize that we've been living life according to our own rules and our own standards, determining what is right and wrong, good and bad for ourselves. And Jesus comes along and he basically says, listen, you now have to follow me, right? You got to live the life that I'm laying out before you. And what's interesting is it's not drudgery, it's not slavery, but rather this call to experience Jesus as a new master actually creates in us the human beings that we were designed to be. We're actually set free to be the people that God wants us to be. Here, this morning, we're going to be taking a look at the next section of Scripture, which is John chapter 2, the very beginning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 and the, 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 essentially the context of this is the wedding at Cana. Some of you guys are familiar with this story, the wedding at Cana. And essentially, Cana is this little town. Galilee is over here in the east. Nazareth is to the west. And remember, Nazareth was a place of no reputation, right? And, uh, and Cana is in between those two places. So if Nazareth is nowhere, then Cana is only on the place, like on the path to nowhere. It's like, an, it's like a nothing place, right? And there's this wedding. And at this wedding, Jesus' mother is there. She's sort of helping out. Her brothers are there. These new disciples are there. Jesus' friends and family are there. There's a bride. There's a groom. There's a master of the ceremony. There are guests. There are servants. There are all these people. It's a typical wedding, right? And some of you who have read this story before, read this narrative, you kind of remember, oh, yeah, this is the place where they run out of wine, and Jesus' mom comes to him, and she says, hey, Jesus, they've run out of wine, and Jesus responds in a way that feels to us to be kind of abrupt with his mother. And we go, ooh, I don't think you're supposed to talk to your mom like that, Jesus, Right, I thought you were supposed to be sinless. I think I'd get in trouble for that. And uh, and so our view or our perspective of this narrative, this story, is you know, grumpy Jesus performs magic trick to get his mom off his back or something. You know, like we read it and we're like, I don't, I don't know what this means. It doesn't fit with the rest of what I've read in Scripture and who told me. You know, people have told me Jesus is. But what's interesting is at the end of this little section, in verse eleven, we are told that Jesus manifested his glory. And that as a result of this, his disciples believed in him. So it wasn't grumpy Jesus just performing a magic trick. Something bigger was going on here. The question is, in what way did Jesus manifest his glory? And why did this experience cause the disciples to suddenly believe in him? Let's take a moment and uh, let's read John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And then we'll pray. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, again, I just would invite uh, or ask you um, to give us your spirit. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this place, and I pray that no one would be able to leave this morning without having had an experience with you, the author of all creation, um, through the power of your spirit. And so, Father, through your spirit, I pray that you would ask us to believe. I pray that you you would um, empower us, to have faith. Father, through your spirit, I pray that you would convict us of sin. Father, I pray that through your spirit, you would uh, You would continue to make us new. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So every now and then an advertising campaign comes along, which you go, okay, that was a good one, right? That's a great advertising campaign. And every now and then an advertising campaign comes along where you're like, I wish I was with the advertising team sitting around the table brainstorming about that advertising campaign. Have you ever you know, seen one of those before? And so one of those advertising campaigns, maybe the one that sticks out the most in my mind and is my favorite advertising campaign, the one where I wish I had been in that room sitting around the table throwing out jokes, is, uh, is one that you guys are all familiar with. It's, uh, it's the Dos Equis commercial uh, called The Most Interesting Man in the World, right? Stay thirsty, my friends. And uh, those of you who aren't familiar with this uh, this great advertising campaign, I'm gonna play you one little clip and uh, we're gonna put it up on the screen here really quickly just to let you know kind of what it's all about. Okay, so that was a quick clip. Are you guys familiar with this this advertising campaign? Okay, anyway, it's it is great. Like it could have been advertising, you know, nail polish, and I would have bought it. You know what I mean? Like anything, I don't care. It's so good. It's so funny. In fact, and so essentially, what it is is that guy with the you know with the beard is the most interesting man in the world. He's he's kind of perfect, right? In every way, he's like the ultimate man, right? And and so I'm going to read a couple more of those little one-liners from other parts, bits and pieces, and I think you'll find them humorous. Here's some of the things that they say about this perfect man, the the most interesting man in the world. One thing they said is, when in Rome, they do as he does. Get I put that in there because we're in Rome. Anyway, next, if he were to mail a letter without postage, it would still get there. His hands feel like rich brown suede. His charm is so contagious vaccines were created for it. Years ago, he created a city out of blocks, and today, over 600,000 people live and work there. He once ran a marathon backwards just to see what second place looked like. One hour of conversation with him is equivalent to 16 years of college. Yeah, that's funny. Anyway, he was once pulled over for speeding, but he let the officer go with just a warning. He once won the Tour de France, but was disqualified for riding a unicycle. And then his organ donation card also lists his beard, right? And so the reason these are funny is because intuitively we all know that what's being described here is uh, this perfect human being, right? The ultimate man, right? And uh, we look at that list and we go, you know, nobody can you know, measure up to all those qualifications, right? Nobody can really win the Tour de France riding a unicycle. I mean, David Slade, who led worship for us today, he only can do two-thirds of the things on that list I just read, right? I mean... If David can only do two-thirds of those things, what does it mean for the rest of us, right? And so, again, what's being described here is the ultimate human being, the perfect man. And we, you know, listen to those things. We chuckle. We laugh. They're funny. But part of the reason they're funny is because we know that they're just not true. They're not possible. There's no such person out there, right? There's, there's no such thing as the perfect man. Or or is there? And, of course, the answer is, well, of course there is. Jesus came to earth precisely to be the perfect man, to be the ultimate human being he came to be everything that we couldn't be he came to do everything that we couldn't do and that's really very much the point of this interesting story today the story of the wedding at cana let me let me call time out really quickly let me give you a little more context i'm going to think about this for a second these 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 jewish weddings would last from three to five days okay just think about that for a second three to five days And so it was really a party. It was a festival, right? And they would go you know, from early in the morning to late at night, and then they'd start again the next day, and then the next day. And so Jesus is there. It's day two, let's say. We don't know exactly, but he's there. And he's attending this wedding. His friends are there, right? His brothers are there. His mother is there. There's food. There's wine. There's a bride. There's a groom. There's guests. There's music, right? What do you think about when you are at a wedding? What do you think about? You probably think, a little bit about maybe weddings you've been to before. You maybe think about your own wedding that you experienced one time. You you maybe think about a wedding one day for your daughter or for your son, or, or maybe if you're a single person, you might think, you know, what if I get married one day? You might think about what your wedding might be. But here's Jesus sitting in the torchlight at this wedding, probably alone, probably deep in thought. And the question is, what might Jesus have been thinking And the interesting thing is the Apostle John, the author of this same gospel of John, gives us a little bit of a clue. In Revelation 19, John writes this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Remember in John chapter 1 where John the Baptist two-time points at Jesus, he directs his, his disciples toward Jesus, and he says, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You get it? When Jesus is sitting there in the torchlight in the evening, right? We we know already the the story. We know that the that you know the wine's running out. We know that these people are there. We know that his mom is involved, and Jesus is sitting there thinking about the wedding supper of the Lamb that he'll get to celebrate with his own wedding party in heaven one day. Jesus was probably also thinking about the words of Isaiah twenty-five, right? He knew the Bible obviously well. Isaiah twenty-five verses uh, six through eight say this, they say on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And so while everybody else is at this wedding ceremony and they're either thinking about nothing, they're chatting, they're drinking wine, they're eating food at the expense of the groom, right? You know, while everybody else is thinking nothing, right? His mom's running around trying to make preparations. The master of the ceremony is doing his thing. And Jesus is probably sitting there and he's thinking about the cost, right? He's not thinking about the cost of this wedding, but he's thinking about the cost. He's thinking about the expense of the eternal wedding feast, of the lamb we all know that weddings are expensive but what was the cost for the wedding supper of the lamb what will be the cost for the wedding supper of the lamb one answer is that the cost of the wedding feast of the lamb is that jesus had to be the perfect son look at verses one through five here on the third day there was a wedding at cana in galilee and the mother of jesus was there jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now again, very quickly, what we see here is that Jesus interestingly turns to his mom and he doesn't say, hey mom, or mother, or mommy, but instead he calls her woman, right? Distancing himself from her relationally, and it sounds abrupt to us. It sounds calloused. It sounds a little sharp. It sounds a little bit rude. And people, you know, theologians try to sort of say, here's what's going on here. Why did this happen? And We've read it before, and if you weren't reading a commentary, you might have just thought, well, Jesus was in a bad mood, kind of snapped at his mom, right? Because when we hear that word woman, I don't know about you, but I hear it in George Jefferson's voice, right? Woman. And, uh, and instead, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is functionally, actually distancing himself ...from his mother and calling her woman. You are a created human being, right? You are, you're one of my creatures, right? You, you're a woman. And then it goes on to say this. It says, Jesus says this. He says, what does this have to do with me? What does this have to do with me? Interestingly, in John, that phrase is used five times. What do you have to do with me? And every single time, it's used by demons when Jesus comes into their presence... The Greek is Emoi kai soi. And every time they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Jesus is distancing himself from his mother. How in the world does this demonstrate that Jesus was the perfect son? Well, think for a moment about another time when Jesus was stern with somebody that he loved dearly. Think about Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus is firm and stern with Peter. Listen to the words of 22 and 23. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is when Jesus had essentially said, hey, I'm, I'm gonna die. And Jesus rebukes him and he says, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me and you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, Jesus not only rebuked Peter, but he rebuked his mother because he was fighting to be faithful ultimately to his father's plan. The rest of this discourse with his mother gives us even another clue about what Jesus was thinking about where he says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come is how he responds to his mom. And John, several occasions in the gospel, records Jesus speaking about this hour. And every single time that Jesus is talking about his hour, do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the cross, right? Every time, my hour has not yet come, the cross has not yet come. It's not the time for me to die yet. You see, Jesus is thinking about his death, and so in the midst of the celebration of you know happy mothers and happy fathers and a happy bride and a happy groom and the master of ceremonies who's stressed out and the guest you know drinking the wine and eating the food and being involved in this party, Jesus is sitting there in the midst of this celebration and he's a thousand miles away. He's 2,000 years away, dreaming of another wedding feast, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he knows that the only path to this wedding feast is to drink the cup of wrath that his father will offer to him on the cross. So how was Jesus the ultimate son? How was he the perfect son? Jesus was the perfectly obedient son, only his obedience was not to his earthly mother. Instead, it was to his heavenly father. Does that make sense? that's what's going on here and so you read this passage it doesn't make any sense to you and all of a sudden you realize that what jesus is doing here is he's saying to peter get thee behind me he's saying to his mom he's saying woman my hour has not yet come he's being obedient to the plan that his heavenly father has set out before him and so the issue for us is to ask ourselves have we been perfect children again the the answer immediately is no you know We have not been perfect children to our earthly parents, but we also haven't been perfect children to our Heavenly Father. And the good news is, is that the price, the expense, the cost of the wedding supper of the Lamb one day in heaven isn't your obedience, but it's Jesus' obedience. It's not your perfection, but it's rather Jesus' perfection. The cost of the wedding supper of the Lamb was that Jesus would be the perfect Son. Next thing... We see in this passage is that the cost of this wedding feast of the Lamb was that Jesus not only had to be the perfect son, but that he also had to be the perfect groom. Listen to verses 6 through 10. They say this, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine... And did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Right? It's an interesting story. And so what we know about this culture is we know that the master of the feast, the guy uh, who was uh, the hired host, essentially, it was his job to make sure everything went smoothly. He was in charge. He was in charge. And it was his job to make sure that everything went off without a hitch and everything went off without fail and, uh, and that the party was a complete success. However, it was the job or the requirement of the groom to make sure that there was enough wine and enough food for three to five days, right? And, and so here we are, probably day two, because the party is not supposed to be over yet. That's why everybody's kind of freaking out. And uh, the groom has clearly failed. Like He's, he's clearly dropped the ball. He has clearly made a mess of this situation. There's not enough wine, and we don't know why. You know, maybe his family didn't have enough money, right? And so maybe they were trying to stretch it out and try to get by with not enough. You know, maybe he just didn't plan well. I I can't imagine any other 18- or 19-year-old boys not planning a major event well and having enough food and drink, right? Regardless, however, he was on the verge of committing a really massive social faux pas. He had failed his guests, right? He had failed his mom and dad. He had failed his family, but most importantly, he had failed his bride. He failed his bride. And just, can you imagine? You know, every argument for the next 30, 40 years was going to begin with, "See, you're the same guy you were at our wedding when you forgot to provide enough wine. He had failed everyone. It was a massive, massive error on his part. And into the midst of this potential calamity steps Jesus, right? And there are these six water jars, and there are these jars that are used for the, what's called the purification rites. They each hold 20 to 30 gallons each. That's, that's huge. It's really big. And what they were used for is before you went in the temple, you would wash with water before you went into the temple, into the presence of God, and it was only then that you would be acceptable to God. And so Jesus tells these uh, servants, he says, hey, fill these things up, 20 to 30 gallons, and then I want you to take it to the master of the ceremony, right? And you can just imagine the servants being like, why are we taking them water out of these jars and instead, what happens is when they take the wine to the master of the ceremonies, there's as much as 180 gallons of wine out of these uh, these containers for ritual purification. And it's not cheap wine, but rather, it's in Greek, it's called cologne wine. It's 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 perfect. It's it's as good as it gets. It's absolutely perfect, and it's not insignificant that these water jars are specified as those used for ceremonial cleansing. Again, these were the jars used by Jews before they went into the temple, into the presence of God. And by changing the water in these jars into wine, Jesus is foreshadowing his blood shed on the cross for the cleansing of his bride, the church. He changes water to wine, but it's not just any wine. It's perfect wine. And Jesus doesn't provide just a little he provides more than enough it's an extravagant amount it's more than they could ever possibly drink at this party by jesus changing water into wine he shows that he is the perfect husband the perfect groom he's the hero jesus here is looking forward to the cross and he's imagining the cost that he would have to pay for his bride and it was the blood of his own son of his of himself and it was perfect and it was more than enough and that's good news for all of us in this room today to think about the fact that Jesus' blood is perfect and it's more than enough. Because the temptation for every single one of us in this room out there is to think, well, I did that thing too many times, or I did that thing and it was too big and it was too bad. There's no way that, that I could be forgiven for that. And part of what's being communicated here is that what is required for you to enter into the presence of God isn't what you bring to the table. Rather, it's what Jesus has brought and given to you through his perfect sacrifice by his blood. It's perfect, and it's more than enough to cover over not only all of your sins, right? You out there, whoever you are, it's not only enough to cover over all of your sins, it's enough, and it's an extravagant amount, but it's enough to cover over all of the sins of all of those people who trust in Jesus as their Savior throughout the history of all of the world. It's an extravagant amount. It's more than enough, and it's perfect. So the question is, what are we to take away from this story what do we do with it part of what we're supposed to take away from the story is that in the end everyone who attends this feast wins right everyone who attends the feast the wedding supper of the lamb everyone wins it's a picture of the gospel ultimately everyone at the feast benefits from jesus miracle jesus mother wins right she gets what she wanted which is to not have this thing come to a screeching halt the people who are there, the guests that are attending this party, they win. The party gets to keep on going for a couple more days. The master of the ceremony and the groom both end up looking uh, you know, good. They avoid shame, and they come out looking like heroes, if anything, for those who know. A teenage bride gets a beautiful wedding at no cost to herself, and she is none the wiser. She has no idea. The disciples get to see Jesus' glory. Everyone wins. Everyone gets what they want And what they need, Jesus, because he's the perfect son, pays the price with his obedience. Jesus, because he's the perfect groom, provides all the wine required by his blood. It's more than enough. There's just one more thing in this passage which stands out, which I I think John wanted us to notice, and it's this. As I read this passage over and over and over again, it stuck out to me. Every single time, I kept seeing this phrase and thinking, why did you include that, John? What's the point? And the phrase was this. It said that after... Jesus changed this water to wine, it said this. It says, though the, it said, nobody knew, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And what's interesting is this word for new is the same word that is used by the apostle John when he talks about Andrew and John, where he says, come and see. The word can be translated, come and know. It's used again by Philip, and it's used again by Nathaniel. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he's talking to Nathaniel, and he says that I saw you under the tree or I knew you under the tree. It's John 17, three. It's now this is eternal life that they may know you the only God, true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so I think what John is telling us in this passage, I think what God is telling us in his inerrant word is that only those who are servants get to see the lamb of God. That only those of us who are servants get to know the glory of of the Lamb of God, of the eternal Lamb of God. Only his servants are invited into this wedding feast of the Lamb. What's interesting is that this morning we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And uh, the Lord's Supper is nothing, if it isn't really a symbol and a sign pointing us towards that eternal wedding feast of the Lamb that we'll get to celebrate in heaven one day. It points backwards to Jesus' death on the cross as the eternal Passover lamb. But this morning, we get to celebrate this meal. There's a table on my right, your left, which has bread and wine. There's a table on my left that has bread and grape juice and another up in the top that has bread and grape juice. And what this bread and what this wine symbolize is Jesus' body and his blood, which was the cost in order that you, in order that I might be invited into this wedding feast of the lamb. What this meal declares today is that the body and the blood of Jesus was more than enough. It's an extravagant amount to cover over all of your sins, past, present, and future. It's more than enough to cover over the cost of your invitation into that eternal wedding feast. And so the, the one caveat, though, is that it's only those of us who trust in Jesus alone as our Savior. It's only those of us who declare that we are his willing servants that are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And so for those of you that are here this morning who haven't come to that place of trusting in Jesus alone as, yourself, as your savior, for those of you in this place who haven't yet said, I'm willing to be the servant of this person that lived 2,000 years ago and we believe sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty today, then I would invite you to simply sit back and watch the people of God as they celebrate this meal of bread and wine as they look back at the cross where Jesus was the eternal Passover lamb, but they look forward to this eternal wedding feast of the lamb that we will get to celebrate with him in heaven. I'm gonna read uh, the words of institution, then I'm gonna pray. And I wanna invite you to take your time to sit back and to think about what it means that Jesus paid the price, the expense, the cost for you to join into his family to be part of this wedding feast in eternity. Hear now the words of institution. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. that he was the perfect groom. We thank you, Father, that Jesus was the perfect human being, that he was perfectly obedient to you as his heavenly father. Father, we thank you that Jesus was the perfect groom and that he was uh, willing to to pay the entire price, to, uh, to be able to, to pay the cost and the expense of allowing us to come into a relationship with you and even to get to dine with you at the wedding feast of the Lamb in heaven. Father, I pray that we would believe as people this morning, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we're invited and, uh, and that we are welcomed in. And so, Father, I pray that as we eat this bread and as we drink this wine, that uh, your Holy Spirit would use the bread and the wine and the bread and the grape juice to, uh, to communicate not only to our heads, but also to our hearts that we are welcomed in, not only as your servants, but as your daughters and your sons. And so, Father, we pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.